بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم السلام عليكم Can everybody hear me? Okay, great. Alhamdulillah. Thank you all for having me. Um, this is my first time here, so I'm very happy to be here. Um, and I want to thank um, the people who put this event on um, in, in choosing this challenging topic. Um, when they asked me if I wanted to speak on it, I almost said no, um, because it's that hard. Um, and, you know, especially with, with the stigmas in our, in our communities. Um, but I felt I felt badly to say no because it's such an important topic, um, and it has to be it has to be discussed um, and really researched as well too, um, so that we can uh, have people who are experts in this topic within the community, and that's something that's very important for us. Alhamdulillah. Um, so, firstly, uh, you know, the sister read my biography, um, and I think for the community, a lot of people don't know what a chaplain is, and that's my title. Um, but I think that's an important thing to bring up in this circumstance because chaplains are people who um, have religious knowledge, but they also have knowledge um, to do pastoral care, which means like a form of, of therapy um, using uh, religious practice. So, you know, we have chaplains at hospitals, on campuses, um, in the military, um, what are some other places? Um, prisons, right? So there are chaplains in all of those places, right? And Muslims, unfortunately, we're very behind in that regard. Um, and we see that there are chaplains of other faiths who are now speaking to Muslims in those areas, right? And sometimes giving Muslims very bad advice. Um, and so we, I see that quite a bit. So even on campus, for example, which is such an impressionable time for our young people, um, there isn't a lot of support, right? They're away from family and they're on campus and they have a lot of questions. So sometimes they go to people to ask them questions about religion and they get responses that are based in other thought process, right, and other uh, religious backgrounds. So it's really important for Muslims to uh, be partaking in those sorts of uh, jobs. When I worked at a hospital as a chaplain, St. Joseph in Ann Arbor, um, the chaplain actually did rounds with the doctors. So there's like a team, right, that does the 9 a.m. huddle. Are there any physicians in the room? Okay, no physicians, at least not that I saw. Um, but 9 a.m., right, the doctor, the pharmacist, the social worker, the chaplain, um, and the nurse, the nurses, right? They all do a 9 a.m. huddle and they talk about all the people that are on the floor. Um, and so the chaplain is there and is present. Why? Because that's a part of holistic health, right? So they want, they want the chaplain to go in and to ask, how are you doing? You know, how is your family life? You know, if you have a religion, how is your, you know, religious practice? What is your relationship like with God, right? And naturally, most of these people aren't Muslim, right? So I'm in this position. It can be kind of difficult sometimes because clearly I'm Muslim. But I walk in, but my job is to try and heal whatever there may be because the hospital understands that that affects the person's physical well-being, right? Um, and this is something that we actually believed a long time ago, right? So this is now modern practice that they do these huddles um, with like a holistic team. Um, but if we look at research, right, in the Islamic golden age, we see that they were doing this actually in the eighth century, right? Um, which is a long time ago, longer even before modern medicine, um, the, the sources for modern medicine really exists, which is the 19th century. Um, mashallah. Uh, one of my teachers at Zaytuna, her name is Dr. Rania Awad. Uh, she's actually a graduate from the University of Michigan, and she studied in Syria with formal teachers and memorized the Quran and studied fiqh and all these sorts of things. And now she's also a psychiatrist at Stanford, right, which is a very prestigious school, and she teaches at Zaytuna. And at Stanford, she leads a research group. 
um, and they basically publish in medical journals. And this is not WebMD, right? So this is like, this is legit. This is, you know, people who are um, really doing their research and publishing um, these papers. And so she has a lot of talks on YouTube. You can look her up. And we actually invited her um, in September to the Felicity Retreat. I don't know if any of you heard of that, but I'm kind of putting a little plug in for that. Um, mashallah. But she's a really, really excellent, wonderful human being. And she published a whole article on somebody in our tradition named Abu Zayd al-Balkhi. Uh, who lived in the ninth century. And actually, his book is available on Amazon. It's been recently translated um, by somebody named Malik uh, uh, Badri. Um, and just as a fact, Malik Badri was also a close friend of Malcolm X. Um, so I saw on the background of the flyer it was a picture of Muhammad Ali, so I figured you might like that tidbit. Um, but uh, Abu Zayd al-Balkhi was a scholar and also a, a physician. And so he wrote in there about um, obsessive compulsive disorder and the symptoms and what those things are, right? And so Dr. Rania took what he said and took what modern medicine says and they pretty much line up, right? But he was in the 9th century, whereas the sources for modern medicine are from the 19th century. So right away she published that and her teachers were very impressed to see that that came from our community, right? Um, and so our scholars took it very seriously. They understood that um, you know, psychology, the, the, the mental health of a human being directly affects um, our lives, right? And it's not something separate. Um, and going back to the basics, right? Many of us might be familiar with the hadith of Gabriel, right? Uh, where Sayyidina Umar narrates that they're sitting with the messenger of Allah, Allah bless him and grant him peace, and a man enters, none of them know who he is, and it's the, it's the angel Gabriel, right? And he asks the Prophet, what is Islam? And the Prophet says, Islam is to believe in the oneness of Allah, right? And the five pillars that we know. And then he says, what is Iman? What is faith? And he says, Iman is to believe in these six things, right? And then he says, what is Ihsan? What is uh, excellence? And he says, to worship Allah as if you see him, and if you don't see him, to know that uh, Allah sees you. Right? But the scholars say that this is body, mind, and soul. Right, So the body, the outward, are the five pillars. So we're testifying that there's only one God and that Muhammad is his messenger. We're praying the five daily prayers. We're establishing that. We're paying the zakat and we're going on, on pilgrimage and we're fasting Ramadan. Right, So those are pretty much bodily things. And then faith is something that's in the heart. Right, You can't necessarily see it outwardly. Right, Not, not every day are you, you know, necessarily uh, proclaiming your belief um, in those six things, although we should be. Um, but that's something that's internal, right? You can't necessarily tell it from someone's phys physicality. And then the third thing, Ihsan, is your soul, right? You're, the way that you're conducting yourself, your character, is you're worshiping Allah as if you see him. And if you don't see him, to know that Allah Ta'ala sees you. So this is the foundation, right? So this hadith is very central in our tradition. It's in Imam al-Nawawi. Uh, it's very central. And it's really the way that the scholars look at the tradition, right, is that there are these spheres um, that, affect, that affect one another and that impact um, one another. Um, there's a beautiful hadith in which the Prophet um, in response to uh, a Bedouin who said, Ya Rasulullah, alana tadawa. O Messenger of Allah, should we take medicine? Should we seek um, you know, help for our ailments? And the Prophet said, Qala naam, Ya ibadallah tadawu inna allaha lam yada'an illa wada'alahu shifa. And this is an Imam Tirmidhi, right? The Messenger of Allah says, Yes, O servants of Allah, tadawu, take medication, ask for help. Look for uh, solutions to these problems because Allah Ta'ala doesn't put an illness on the earth except that he also puts the shifa, right, the remedy for it. Um, so this is, right, the basis of why the scholars were so adamant in, in researching, you know, uh, about different illnesses, um, whether they be physical or uh, mental or spiritual. And then another hadith in Sahih Muslim that Jabir reported that the Messenger of Allah, alayhi said, 
There is a remedy for every malady, and when the remedy is applied to the disease, it is cured with the permission of Allah, the exalted, and the glorious. Um, and so this is where we could really see that beautiful fusion, right, of people who are dedicated to mental health and physical health, and also believers, right? Because we know that nothing can happen except with the power of Allah Ta'ala, right? No medicine, no doctor, nothing can cure you if it's not Allah Ta'ala's will, right? Um, and of course, this is, our, this is our foundation, and this is what sets us apart um, and uh, gives us that excellence in everything that we do. Um, perhaps some of the, the stigma, um, we can kind of see it playing out, for example, God forbid, um, if I had gotten in a car accident on my way here and was bleeding, had broken an arm, nobody would say, okay, just read Quran over her, don't take her to the hospital, right? I don't think any of you would say that, would you? Otherwise, I'd have some serious trust issues, right? Um, you, would, you would call 911 and say, we got to get her to the hospital, right? Um, whereas if I told you, look, I, I'm having a lot of, you know, I'm having a lot of issues, I think I'm, I'm depressed, you know? Um, sometimes people might respond, oh, you don't, you know, your faith isn't strong enough, uh, you know, you need to see the imam, et cetera, et cetera. Now, some of that might be true, but I think here the divergence is that, does that mean that in the former case, when I go to the ER, that I'm not having trust in Allah Ta'ala, that I'm having trust in the doctors? If so, that's an issue, right? Either way, it's Allah Ta'ala that's going to heal me, right? Whether it's a broken arm or, you know, there's something happening with me spiritually or mentally, nothing can harm me except if Allah allows it, and nothing can heal me except for all, that Allah allows it, right? Um, so we have to remember that. So in the same, in the same um, vein that we would, we would go to the ER seeking help, we should also seek help and know that it's with Allah Ta'ala that we might go see a therapist or a psychiatrist or et cetera, et cetera, right? Because we believe it's Allah Ta'ala that can heal us, and that the way that he created this earth was that we should take the means, right, the asbab. Um, so I don't think, um, you know, any of us is just sitting at home and waiting for, you know, um, what's a good example? Um, we, many of us go out and work, right, to make a living. So we're not, you know, just magically expecting there to be money in our bank accounts, right? Um, we're going out and we're seeking knowledge and we're coming to the masjid and we're doing all of these things. And this is called taking asbab. This is taking the means in order to get things from Allah Ta'ala, right? Because he is a razzaq, right? He is ultimately the one who is going to provide for us financially and, and uh, you know, uh, um, our, our food and everything that we need. Um, but he also says he asked you to go and work, right? Here, here he asked, you know, whoever was working in the household to go ahead and do that, right? Not to expect it to all of a sudden show up without taking the means, right? And so these asbab are very important. Um, and this is why we go to the doctor, right, when we have a broken arm. And the doctor, you know, might put a cast on it or whatever, but ultimately, did the doctor heal the bones? No, right? Um, ultimately, it's Allah Ta'ala. And sometimes maybe Allah says that he won't heal them, right, and that something will be wrong and it will continue to be that way. And that's also Allah Ta'ala's will. Um, and so it's important to, to realize that that is the same case for a mental um, struggle, right? Is that it's Allah Ta'ala who's going to cure it and by the asbab, by the means, because that's the way that he set things up, right? And we can even look at um, his sending of messengers in scripture, right? He didn't just send the Quran as a fu fully formulated book to be found on, you know, a mountain or something, right? He sent a prophet, and even to the Prophet, he sent the angel Gabriel, right? And these are the means that Allah Ta'ala sends um, his blessings um, through. Um, a good example, too, is in the Quran, we see uh, Sayyidah Maryam, right? One of the best uh, women um, in our tradition, one of the complete women in our tradition. In the beginning of the chapter in the Quran, we see that Sayyidina Zakariya, the prophet, um, comes into her uh, mihrab, right? Her private place of prayer. And they say, actually, um, you had to like climb down a ladder to get there, right? Like it was really deep. Like it wasn't, you know, just a door. Like it was really secluded. 
And so he would climb down there to make sure she was okay. And then he found what? A basket of fruit, right? Food. And he said, where did you get this from? Because he knows that she doesn't, she doesn't leave, right? She doesn't leave the mihrab and he didn't bring it for her, right? And so she says, this is from Allah, right? And so we see here that Allah Ta'ala can send those things if he wants without the asbab, right? So sometimes he just sends it and he, and he, and he does it the way he wants. But later in the chapter, when she's about to give birth to Sayyidina Isa and she doesn't have any food or water, what does Allah Ta'ala say? Shake the trunk of the tree, right? And then the dates will fall. But this is the same woman who had a basket full of fruit earlier in the chapter without the tree and without shaking the tree, right? So in that same woman, we have an example of Allah Ta'ala sending her things through asbab and through himself directly, right? Um, and so this is the way that this is what we believe, right? That Allah Ta'ala can do all things. Um, and also sometimes he asks us to shake the tree, right? To go, to go uh, seek help and talk to our family and talk to our communities and say that we need, um, we need some help. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Um, another, you know, really important principle in our Sharia is something called fard kifaya and fard ayn, right? So fard ayn is that which is every single person has to do, right? What's an example of that? Yes, eat. That's okay. What about religiously? Pray, pray right? Somebody said pray. I'm sorry, brothers, I didn't hear you. Somebody said pray. So I can't just like make your salat for you and then Allah will accept that, right? No, like you have to do that and I have to do that. Each one of us has to do it, right? But there are some things that are fard kifaya. That means the whole community, only one person or a group of people has to do it. What's an example of that? Janazah, right? So not every single person has to go and wash the body and do, be there, right? But a group of people or one person, whoever can do it, needs to be there. Or else each, each and every one of us is at fault, is at sin, right? Because we didn't make sure that that existed, right? And so our scholars took this very seriously, right? And they said, okay, what are the fard ayn of the community and what are the fard kifaya? If we're going to establish a Muslim community, what does the community need to be self-sufficient so that all of its needs are met, right? So that's why in the glory, right, the glory days, right, the golden age of Islam, we had um, all of these inventions, right, and all of these hospitals and all of these things because they realized that the community needs these things, right? We can't rely on anyone else um, to, to develop and, and to educate our community. So it was during that time um, that actually the first psychiatric ward was established, and can anybody guess where that was in the world? <coughs> Baghdad. Good guess, though. So Baghdad, right? Eighth century, right? In Baghdad, that was the first psychiatric ward. Psychiatric ward is like it was a part of a hospital, right? Not the whole hospital, part of it, right? And so research was done on this hospital, what was in it, right? And so you see that they had their own sorts of therapies, right? So they had the physicians, but then they had massage therapy and other sorts of therapies, right, that they would do um, to take care of, of the patients. And that means that they also acknowledged that there was need, right? There was need for that psychiatry. There was need for um, somebody to look at the mental health of the patients um, and realize that that was impacting them negatively. Um, and what was also really beautiful is that this was being paid by zakat money, right? So the government was using zakat money to fund the psychiatric ward, right, and these hospitals, and after that it would be full-on hospitals um, for psychiatry, right? So that's like, that's, uh, that's the purpose of our uh, tradition, right? Zakat is not just supposed to, you know, be given begrudgingly and, you know, or even worse that we not give it, right? But that we give it and that whoever is collecting it is distributing it properly to then benefit the community and benefit the ummah so that nobody has to be concerned, I can't pay, right? I can't pay for therapy, I can't pay, which is a very real concern that I think a lot of us face, right? Like, maybe I do want to go seek help, but I don't, I can't afford it, I don't have insurance or my insurance doesn't pay for it. Um, and so this is really, um, this is, this negatively affects our community and we have to find a way 
around it. Um, and then we see, you know, a kind of a fall in our community, um, and that's around the Enlightenment in Europe, right? So we have the Islamic Golden Age, and then there's the Enlightenment in Europe, the so-called Enlightenment, where they think that, you know, they figure things out. Um, the Enlightenment is actually a very, very awful time for religion. Um, enlightenment was when um, some of the, uh, uh, you know, philosophers and people like that decided to create what was called scientism, not science, but scientism. And the ism part of it, um, can be defined as only that which you can prove physically is true, right? And this creates a huge issue for people who believe in the unseen, right? For religion and religious people. Um, and really that debate impacted really Christianity more so than anything else um, because some of the scientists were realizing that in the book there were discrepancies, right? About the earth being flat or whatever. And so they were realizing like, hey, this is not actually factually true as we're discovering using science, right? So then they decided, okay, let's put all of the religious stuff aside, and then we'll be over here, you know, in reality, right? So there was this kind of prejudice against religion, um, and they bifurcated the two. They separated the two and saying, okay, the priests and the pastors and all of them are going to be over here, and the rest of us are going to be here in the real world. And that really um, put religion in a very um, difficult spot, right? So that's happening in kind of Christian Europe, but of course that impacts Islam, right? Because of course there were Muslims there and then they would go on and, and Europeans would colonize other places and bring these sorts of understandings into, into Muslim majority worlds. And so perhaps we could even see that in our own community, which is what, that the Imams and, and people like that, they're in kind of one corner and then everybody else is living life, right? And there isn't that kind of communication to say, no, that our religion absolutely impacts, uh, impacts us and um, there's a way for us to, to be in conversation and to look for that holistic health, right? To use both what we find in the tradition and to use what's good of science and what's true of science to help and to uh, benefit our community. Um, and there's a really beautiful article. I would be happy if just one person went home and read this. Um, it's it's kind of long, it's 40 pages. Um, and it's something that I've read now many times and each time I read it, I get something new. But it's called Living Islam with Purpose by Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah. Living Islam with Purpose. And Dr. Omar actually, he taught at U of M back in the 80s. Um, and he lives in Chicago mostly now, but he's also a sheikh. Um, and he studied very extensively in different parts of um, the world. Um, but in this beautiful, beautiful article, he talks about what are the maqasid of the sharia, what are the objectives of the sharia, right? Now, if we were to open up Fox News, we, you know, maybe they would say the objective of sharia is death, right? And a'udhu billah, this is something awful that we're seeing. So we as Muslims have to know what is the objective of, of this sharia, right? Um, so the scholars, they answered this question, right? And they looked at the Quran and the hadith and fiqh and all of this, and they said, okay, the objectives of the sharia are five, right? To preserve religion, Self, reason or intellect, children and wealth, right? So those are the five things that the sharia is trying to protect, right? Religion, self, reason, children and wealth, right? So even if you find um, an opinion that might go against those, you would say, no, the objective of sharia is to do those things. So an example, right? So if you were to take some of these awful people who are hijacking our religion um, and they say, okay, we have to go out and kill all people and that's the objective of the sharia, you can say, no, the objective is actually to preserve, right? To preserve life, not to end life. And so they might use our Quran to um, cause fitna between us and say, no, it says in there in the Quran. And that's when we say, no, that's a particular ayah for a particular time. That's not the objective of the whole sharia, right? The whole sharia has to exist for all times, right? All human beings. And it's a mercy to the world. As we know, the Prophet ﷺ said, I was sent only as a mercy to mankind, right? So in our religion, we believe it's true forever, right? Not just true for 7th century Arabia. It has to be true 
for 21st century Sterling Heights, Michigan, right? Um, and it has to be true for you know, Ann Arbor and Detroit and you know, California and India and Pakistan and Sham and all these different places. Um, and so it has to be abstracted enough where it can be utilized in those spaces um, and that we can connect with Allah Ta'ala and with our Prophet using these um, wisdoms. So if part of it is preserving reason and intellect, then we have to look like what, what is going on in our communities where that might be in, inhibited, right? And so all of us know that um, you know, the ruling about alcohol and drugs and these sorts of things is because it's an impediment to our, right, to our, uh, uh, to our reason, right? And so we know that, that that's forbidden because of, because of that, right? So then that begs the question, what else, is, what else is inhibiting our ability to be holistic human beings, you know? Um, what other remedies can we look for to make us um, even, um, you know, more, more in tune with our surroundings and more in tune with our body and more in tune with our um, relationships. Um, and from there, we can see how important it is uh, to, Allahumma salli alayhi Muhammad, to go into the, the field of, of psychiatry and seek that help for the sake of preserving ourselves and our, our reason. Um, and also in the article, um, he talks about the five principles, right? So there are five like maxims um, within the sharia that the scholar said that these five are absolutely like, these are the most important principles. So the first one is, matters will be judged by their purposes. Al-umuru bi maqasidiha, right? Um, and a good example of this, um, he, he speaks about the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ says, قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ مَنْ تَشَبَّهَ بِقَوْمٍ فَهُوَ مِنْهُمْ This is in uh, Dawood, Abu Dawood. So whoever imitates uh, a people is from them, right? And so some of some people and some scholars might say, oh, that's the reason that we can't engage in this Western medicine because the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever imitates them is from amongst them and we don't want to be from amongst them. But Dr. Umar says um, that tashabbaha is um, to, to intend to want to be like them because you think they're better, right? Like I want to look like them and be like them because I think they're, they're better, right? And that's the, what the hadith says. But tashabbaha is to resemble. Right, and so that's why we can, uh, um, you know, the, what, people can wear pants and dress in kind of right um, different garb. Right, we don't all have to wear the same exact dress. Right, now there's sunnah dress, yes, but there are other opinions that allow us to wear different fabrics and things like this. Um, and this is where it comes from, right? It's not because we think that's superior to what the Prophet ﷺ wore, what they wore at that time, but because it's allowed, it's permissible in the Sharia to do so. As long as in my heart, I don't think this is superior to what other people are wearing, right? This is superior to what the Prophet ﷺ wore. That's when it becomes problematic, right? Um, and so this is the foundation of our tradition, right? So that we can engage in, in modern medicine and things like that, as long as we understand um, that there are rules Allah Ta'ala has sent down through the Prophet and whatever is harmful from it, we leave it, right? And then we add on to it what's beneficial and what um, we can be creative um, within our tradition and using our religion to do so. Um, I just want to look at the time. Oh boy, seven minutes left, mashallah. Okay, um, so there are other principles that I would really love if everybody could, could read because they're very, very important. Um, so a little bit on statistics on mental health uh, amongst the youth. So I work with a lot of college-age students. Um, and let me tell you, it's very, very important to know that this is a very, very real issue. Um, and on John Hopkins, and you can look this up online, which is a foremost you know, medical uh, institution, um, says that 26% of Americans age, ages 18 and older, which means about one in four adults, suffers from a diagnosable mental disorder in any given year. So every year, 26% of Americans are getting diagnosed, right? One in four adults, which is very, very high. Um, 
And then also we see amongst the youth, the, youth, the ages of 17 to 25, um, is also a time where people have a lot of breakdowns. Now there are a lot of reasons for this. Some of this might be biological. Um, some of it might be you know, because of the atmosphere, they're in a lot of stress, or maybe some family struggles, things like that. Um, some of it might be spiritual, right? All of those things might be contributing um, to a breakdown. And that's why it's important for us to have institutions where we can support each other in a holistic way, right? So alhamdulillah, this youth directorship is one way that we're supporting our youth, right? But then the youth also have to go to college, they have to go to the masjid, they have to go home, they have to have healthy friends. They need all of these different, they, ideally we would have our own hospitals, right? Muslim hospitals with Muslim psychiatrists, right? So there isn't even that stigma of, oh, if I go and I tell them, you know, I'm having this issue, they're gonna say, oh, it's because you're an oppressed woman in a Muslim family, right? And we get that too. So that's why it's even more important for us as Muslims to be engaged in those fields so that we're not um, you know, uh, leaving our mental health to, to people who might be hateful towards our religion and our beliefs. Um, and uh, the first age at which onset uh, manic episode might occur is in the early 20s, right? So these are, these are the people that we try to serve and we try to support. Um, so we see that a lot. Now for families, it might be very difficult on multiple levels. First of all, it might be difficult for um, the person who's suffering to even say that to their family, like, hey, I want to open up a conversation about this. Um, and on the receiving end, the family might feel like a little bit ashamed, like, you know, what did I do for my child to be suffering from this? Did I do something wrong, right? And to that, we would say, Allah Ta'ala says, la hawla wa la quwata illa billah, right? Allah Ta'ala is the one who is in, in control. Nothing happens except through Allah Ta'ala, right? So there's no neat reason to blame yourself or to blame someone else. But the best thing to do is to try and open up that dialogue with our loved ones, right? Um, and then another great thing that families can do is to ask them, how, how can I help you, right? Can I help you by, you know, calling a therapist or can I help you by, you know, and sometimes the person won't know, right? The young person won't know, but they'll just say, hey, I, I need some help. And then the parent should ask around, right? And should confide in others and say, hey, my, my, my child is going through this. What can we do to help? And believe you me, it's not, you're not going to be the only people going through it, right? We just read the statistics. And we're not... Um, just because we're Muslims doesn't mean we're not living in America and, and, and part of these statistics, right? So I think sometimes in our Muslim community, we think, oh, that doesn't happen to us. That's like, happens to them. No, that's, that's not how it works, right? We're all being impacted by one another and by our ideologies and by our religions and, and, and by the mere fact that we're living in 2018 and being um, subjected to the news and other world realities, right? So we're all in this together, ultimately. Um, and it's important to, to realize that. Um, and another really kind of important thing that I want to uh, bring up, and another principle that Dr. Omar talks about, which is that um, certainty is not overruled by doubt, right? Um, and so this is something that they use in fiqh um, uh, to talk about, you know, things that we're certain about, right? So for example, um, if I know that I prayed three rak'ahs and I'm unsure if I prayed the fourth in dhuhr, you know, do I say, do I go back to the second rak'ah? No, you go back to the third rak'ah because you for sure you know that you prayed three rak'ahs, right? So that's the certainty aspect of it. Um, and also it's important to, to recognize that um, there's always leeway, right? If somebody is in distress, there, there is leeway. And so there's a really kind of heartbreaking hadith that we find um, in, uh, I believe it's Imam Muslim's collection, that the Sahaba went out on a journey and one of them had a wound on his head, like had a gash. And he woke up in the morning and he had to make ghusl. So he said to the other Sahaba, do you think that I could just do tayammum because like, I've got this gash in my head? And the Sahaba said, no, you can only do tayammum if there's no water, but there is water, so you have to make ghusl. So he makes ghusl and he dies, right? So they go back to Medina and the Prophet ﷺ hears about this and he says they killed him, 
right? Like because of your staunchness, because of your, you know, um, holding on to that, um, which is true, that ruling is true, right? But there's always going to be exceptions, right? And only learned people will know that. People who um, don't know the full depth of the Sharia aren't going to know that there is room, right? And so he said, you killed, you killed him. Like, that's on you, you know? And that's a very heavy thing. So when we respond to one another, if somebody says, oh, I think I'm suffering from depression, and then I say, no, you're not, and I, com I completely just bypass them, that can really have a very negative effect on them physically and spiritually and mentally. So it's important then um, for me, if I don't know, I can say I don't know, but hey, I know somebody that I can call that can help. Right, um, and I can be that person for them, and that's also being rewarded, rewarded by Allah Taala. Right, we know that Allah Taala, uh, the Prophet says that Allah Taala is in the aid of a person as long as you're in the aid of another. Right, not pushing them away and saying I don't have time for this. You know, I don't know this weird depression stuff. No, it's important to um, be engaged and be committed to helping one another um, get through these um, difficulties. And also. One thing that Dr. Rania says in, in the psychiatry realm is that long stress for long, long amounts of time also impacts uh, a person's right mental well-being. So all of us, I don't think anybody in this room would say, I'm not stressed, maybe they're very little kids, but a lot of us are under a lot of stress a lot of the time. And we also have to know and have mercy with ourselves that that can really impact our um, well-being. Um, and um, we should also really build that community. And that's another thing that the Sahaba had, right? They had that community. And they weren't afraid to express when they needed help. Um, and they were very humble about that. And we see that even in this really beautiful hadith. And I know my time is up. I'm sorry. I'm really dragging it here. But um, another thing that we hear a lot is, oh, you don't have enough faith. That's why you're going through this, right? And um, subhanAllah, that's really a heartbreaking response, right, to someone who's coming with something so vulnerable to say you don't have enough faith. First of all, how do I know that I have enough faith as the person who's saying that, right? The Sahaba were very humble people. And they were people who actually said to one another, for example, Abu Bakr and Alhamdulillah, they both said, oh, we're hypocrites, right? Imagine if I said that in front of you, I'm a hypocrite. I'd find tweets. I knew it all along, you know, so-and-so doesn't have full faith, right? Like we would just be waiting to, to say, uh, to blame another person, right? But the Sahaba themselves were very humble and they didn't think, they didn't feel like they were safe all the way until Abu Bakr said, until both of my feet are in heaven, not just one, right? And that's the Prophet's greatest companion, right? Um, so they were open with one another about the struggles with the in the faith that they were going through, right? It wasn't always easy, um, and it didn't just happen like that, right? It was something that they struggled with, and that as a community, they were able to build with one another and reinforce one another's belief. Um, and that's something also we see uh, in this beautiful hadith in which um, one of the Sahaba said, Ibn Arsal, said that he heard one of the other Sahaba reciting Qur'an in a different way than he learned it from the Messenger of Allah. So he took him to the Messenger of Allah and they both recited the Qur'an and the Prophet said, both of them are true. So then Ibn Arsad said, a little bit of doubt entered into my heart, right? Like imagine he's narrating the hadith. Like I think I would have left that out, right? Like if that happened to me, I was narrating hadith, I would have probably left that out. But he's saying actually overcame me in my heart. It was almost like I was in the jahiliya, right? And the Prophet Isad looked at him, and that's another deep thing, is the Prophet looked at him and could tell from his being that that had happened. So what does the Prophet Isad do? He, he, puts, he takes his hand and he strikes him on the heart, right? And in that moment, Ibn Isad says, I started, I like broke out in sweat, and it was almost like I could see Allah Ta'ala, right? Like he became, like he, the Prophet Isad through his striking him, went into kind of like a state, right? Um, and in that moment, it was very clear to me, like it was like I was looking at Allah Ta'ala. So what does this hadith teaches us? First of all, the Sahaba were very honest, like, hey, I'm going through it, some doubt entered into my heart, and they weren't afraid to express it. Also, what does that mean? The Prophet ﷺ didn't push him away. He didn't say, don't come into my presence again, I'm the Messenger of Allah, I'm in front of you, right? Like, we don't even get to see the Messenger of Allah, and we believe, right? Like, imagine that he's in front of them, right? 
But the Prophet ﷺ, he touches him, you know, like he brings him closer. He helps him see, right? He helps him uh, believe even, even more. And that's something that we see in the pattern of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, is that anybody who comes up to him, even with a question that we would deem to be embarrassing or something that has to do with doubt, doubt and faith, he always, he brings them closer, right? He says, come closer. Um, and so that should be our principle as Muslims, as followers of this beloved Prophet ﷺ, is that if we're struggling with something and somebody shares that with us, we bring them closer, right? We draw them and we, um, uh, we tell them that we're in this together and we reinforce um, one another. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Zakum wa khair.